Welcome to Riding Westward. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. Today we'll be talking with Barney Scout Mann, the author of the new book, Journeys North, the Pacific Crest Trail. For new listeners, let me take a quick moment to explain a bit about the podcast. Each episode features a conversation with authors, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, academics, or others who write about the North American West. Our goal is not only showcase their work, but to spark curiosity among you, the listeners, to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the people who call it home. If a writer intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation, with me playing the roles of host, producer, sound engineer, and just about everything else, all of which entail tasks for which I have very little training. But I am passionate about the North American West, and all the work is well worth the excuse to read more and to talk to interesting people. At the end of this episode, I will include some more information on me and my scholarship and on the Red Center, our programming and projects and funding opportunities that you could apply for. That's right, we may want to give you money. With all this business out of the way, let's move on to today's conversation. First, I'd like to introduce to you who it is we're talking to and why. Barney Mann, known on the trails as Scout, is an avid hiker, writer, and storyteller. Having completed the 2,650-mile Pacific Crest Trail, the 3,100-mile Continental Divide Trail, both of which span from Mexico to Canada, and the 2,190-mile Appalachian Trail, which stretches from Maine to Georgia, he is one of the few in the long-distance through-hiking community to boast triple crown status. In addition to putting in miles on the trails and writing about them, He's made significant contributions to the outdoors community by serving as board president of the Partnership for the National Trail System, board chair of the Pacific Crest Trail Association, president of the Continental Divide Trail Coalition, and by hosting, along with his wife Sandy, thousands of hikers to sleep a night or two at their Southern California home in preparation for embarking on the Pacific Crest Trail. In his 2020 book, Journeys North, the Pacific Crest Trail, published by Mountaineer Books, Mann tells of the 2007 Pacific Crest Trail through hiking season, through the experiences of his own and his wife, as well as a host of other hikers who they shared the trails with for their five-month trek. Supplementing hikers' trail journals and blogs with extensive interviews he conducted later, Mann weaves together various hikers' challenges and triumphs along the Pacific Crest Trail with their backstories and what brought them to the trail. What results is a compelling blending of both individual characters' stories and the collective narrative of their interactions, their shared joys, and their shared pains. Mann unfolds the Pacific Crest Trail geography, environment, and key features through the lenses of these hikers' sweat, blisters, aching muscles, broken teeth, frostbitten digits, hunger and thirst, logistical and financial crises, and severe illnesses. Lest you leave us with too negative an impression, though, man's most consistent thematic through lines in these narratives are how the PCT hiking experience led the community of hikers to revel in simple joys, the joys of a, a greasy burger, chocolate pudding, a rare hot shower, and growing camaraderie and friendship. More important and more deeply, he shows how the PCT experience imparted soul-stretching personal transformations for all involved. Journeys North reveals the power that Western American public lands, wilderness, and their extensive networks of trails can have on people's lives, and eloquently demonstrates why they are worth protecting and maintaining. Barney Scoutman, welcome to Riding Westward. Pleasure to be here today. I hope that you are having um, a good fall and autumn, looking uh, forward to winter. Doing so. Actually, going to be with our uh, uh, grandkids here uh, pretty soon. Oh, so great. I'm very much looking forward to that. Great. I'm very excited to talk about your book, Journeys North. 
and it wasn't exactly the book that I thought it was going to be. And it turned out, not that I didn't expect it to be compelling and great, but what you ended up writing actually really surprised me and was uh, much more compelling than I thought. I was flipping to that last page uh, in eager anticipation to see how it all wraps up. <laughs> that was my hope. I'm really excited to talk to you about hiking and about trail systems, uh, especially here in the American West, as it is a unique region in that it has has a lot of kind of contiguous stretches of wilderness and public lands that allows for these kinds of routes to be schemed up and drawn out. So this will be a great addition to the podcast and broader discussions about the West. Looking forward uh, to, to, to chatting about it. So instead of just kind of going through your five-month Pacific Crest Trail through hike, the, you know, the readers can you know, read the book uh, to get all the the blow-by-blow -blow action of that. Um, I want to spend most of our time talking about the broader world that your hike takes took place in um, and some of the lessons or truths or things that you learned from this experience, which is now you know, over a decade ago. And, and I think we can kind of paint a broad picture in which to contextualize this book. So for the uninitiated, could you quickly explain to us uh, where the Pacific Crest Trail is, how long it is, how remote and rough it is, and maybe how long the average person takes to do a full through hike of it? Okay, a lot of questions tucked in there, but let's start with one you didn't ask, and maybe the mo one of the more important take-homes. The trail that so many of our friends and relatives think that we hiked is <laughs> the Pacific Coast Trail, and I can't tell you how many interviewers I've had, in fact, even on TV recently, and the first words out of the host mouth is Pacific Coast Trail. That's not the trail. You don't even see the ocean any spot on the 2,650 miles. It's Pacific Crest Trail because that's where it runs. And it doesn't start in San Diego along the coast. It actually starts 60 miles inland, about as obscure as you can get placed along the Mexican border. And it starts there because that's where the first mountain crest comes. And it literally, it was mapped out. A guy did it uh, in the 1930s using gasoline station maps. I've actually seen taped together 65 feet worth of gasoline station maps where the trail was first, you know, in pencil and erasers put on the ground. Oh, I love it. So uh, <laughs> don't, don't, you, don't you love that? And I've seen the uh, the trail now ends at a uh, spot in the Mexican border. Uh, we call it Manning Park. And if you can imagine, you've hiked for five months. The answer to one of your questions, generally speaking, uh, four and a half to five and a half months is the average time that a through hiker will take to, to do the whole thing. So picture yourself ending. He said, all right, I'm at the Canadian border. Yeah. You still have eight more miles to walk to get <laughs> to, 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 to anywhere Park, yeah. in right, Manning Park and civilization. I know that region of the border. Uh, that's where I'm from. And uh, it is about as remote as you can get in the lower 48. You know, the the upper portions of North, North Cascades, there's not much out there. There's barely any even dirt roads. Well, that's right. And in fact, the um, one area of the PCT or Pacific Crest Trail uh, has the longest roadless stretch of trail in the uh, lower 48 states. And that's in the Sierra Nevada. 210 miles the trail goes without crossing a road the entire way, which wow. is really cool. And that's one of the unique things about, about the trail and its characteristics is this is the 21st century. We are uh, in the United States of America and uh, 1,700 miles of it passes through California, the most populous state in the United States. And yet more than half of the trail is on congressionally designated wilderness. You're walking a land, uh, uh, nothing mechanized is allowed to be on. You say, oh, okay, that's fine. But surely when trees fall across the trail, they allow in chainsaws, right, nope. Scout? No, they do not. In fact, uh, I have on my wall uh, here a, a six-foot-long crosscut saw. And so imagine cutting it, cutting through a, uh, uh, three foot, four foot, five foot or more foot bore log using crosscut saws. But you know what they do allow in wilderness, Brendan? Uh, you can use dynamite. Really? Yes. I don't know why, but you, you're allowed to use dynamite, but nothing quote mechanized. I so guess you have it's to crosscut that tree, but you can dynamite the stump <laughs> if you need to. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard that being done. We have some wilderness just behind us here, uh, wilderness designated area, and I've run into trail crews there in the summer 
these high school, college age kids on a summer job packing, yeah, cross cut saws way up into the mountains to, you know, clear out, you know, deadfall from the previous winter. And they're like, nope, they don't even let us use chainsaws. One of the wonders of a trail such as the Pacific Crest Trail, uh, or in closer to your home, you have the Continental Divide Trail, is that the moment you step on these, you cross them, you, you drive, you pull over into a trailhead, and you turn one direction, and you think, oh my gosh, I could walk. My two feet could carry me in a continuous line on a trail all the way to Canada, and then I turn 180 degrees, and I could walk all the way to Mexico. That, it's a modern miracle, and it's wonderful. It's worth protecting. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the allure and the the intrigue of it, right? Because I'm afflicted with this disease as well, where when I look at maps, I immediately start looking at ridge lines and which trails connect, and I just can't help but... I mean, I, I can't tell you how many GPX files I have saved on my computer of stupid, ridiculous you know, trail running routes that I've drawn out. But there's something about when you see two distant points and you realize that there's a way to connect them uh there's something really really tempting about that uh has this been a, something of a lifelong thing that you've been afflicted with or is it more recent when you uh you know in the when you decide to go do this full through hike well if you were to step into uh, little barney's house and uh predict that he would be a uh, grow up to be a long distance hiker you would not have said so Grew up in a big city just outside, uh, 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 West Los Angeles, a little place called Culver City, but a large city. Two parents, God bless them. Uh, they have camped out a total of five days in their lifetime. They're now 96 and 90, each time saying was their last. But what they did do is they took me to Boy Scouts meetings. And there is where I fell in love with the outdoors. Uh, I, think Mr. Matt, story, I think it's a story for a lot of us suburban kids. Yeah. Well, what's different about the PCT um, compared to, say, the Appalachian Trail in, in, in terms of its ruggedness or remoteness? Or, I mean, as you say, this this tremendous percentage of it being on actual, you know, not just public land, but wilderness designated land. Like, so what's the difference between this and, say, the Appalachian Trail, which is the other kind of big one that people always look to? Right. The differences are um, uh, physical differences I would describe as being night and day. But a lot of the feeling, how you feel out there and in sections, there are a lot of overlap in the feeling. So physical differences, what you asked about. They call the Appalachian Trail the Green Tunnel because for 75% of it, it is true. Mm. The little, uh, uh, the little guidebook uh, they have for the AT, uh, will tell you often, and this is, I'm not exaggerating, it'll say, these are the three places today. I'm covering 20 miles. Three places today you'll have a view. Of anything other than trees in front of you other and than, above you. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to walk off the trail to get the view. I'm, I'm a big map person. I mean, remember actually physical maps? Uh, I do, you know, I have an app on my phone these days and have had for, you know, for five years, but I physically carry apps. And when I through hike the Appalachian Trail, which is only a couple years back, 2017, of the, Probably a couple thousand people I saw. I hiked southbound, so only maybe 300 people hiked my direction. But I was a couple, 3,000 hiked northbound, and I passed the group percentage. I don't think I saw one other person carrying paper maps. And aside from the fact that people don't turn to them as much these days, on the AT, literally, I am so used to being aware of where my where the mountain is, where the canyon is, where the river is. I... My field of vision is 100 feet. I see tree trunks, and I see the rocks and roots in the ground. So it that uh, um, um, that's one difference. The um, which experience do, did you like better? Did you like having more of the open? I mean, I I, say, I would think I'd prefer the big open vistas on the PCT. But there's something to be said about being forced to kind of just be aware to you know the microcosm of you know the few feet in front of you. But I think I'd prefer the views. So even if you didn't have the uh, green tunnel effect in the AT, you still would not be looking around much. Because unlike trails on the Continental Divide or on the on the Pacific Crest Trail, where if you picture your head what a trailhead looks like, usually it's a pretty good trail, a lot of flat to it. The AT is roots and rocks, and I almost have to even when I'm in uh, I'm above tree line 
or the northern 500 miles, there's a lot of area that in Maine and New Hampshire that you're above tree line. Um, I have to sneak looks up because if I'm if I'm not looking down, I'm asking the fall to be flat in my face uh, the next moment. I'm breaking teeth like your wife did. <laughs> right, like yeah, I'm breaking teeth like my uh, the tooth, like like my wife did on the PCT. On for five months, I fell five times on the Pacific Crest Trail. One morning in Maine, on slick granite that did not resemble trail in front of me, uh, with no friction, and I'm using four and five point stances, so I, uh, my hands free, so I can grab the trees on either side of it, and it, occasionally I'm using my butt as the five, as the fifth point in my, in my stance. That morning, I fell 14 separate distinct times, and I'm talking good falls where uh, most of them I'm lucky enough. I'm falling and I can turn around and land on my back. So I'm landing on my pack and it got something between me and that. Um, so, so that's a big difference there too. The AT um, is also a AT Appalachian trail is a bit of tale of two trails. I did it southbound, which maybe 5% of people do it southbound. And the northernmost 500 miles of the AT is entirely different than the southern uh, 1700 miles. Um, you're in, you're in mountains. Your trail is so much on slick granite. It's old trail. And so uh, your, your, uh, your listeners can't see it, but I'm holding my hand up at a steep angle. And in a one particular hundred mile stretch, I took a picture, which I treasure. And that's a picture of the one, the one switchback <laughs> in that hundred miles. You go straight up and you go straight down. And my I kids always out- complain when we're hiking and there's lots of switchbacks. Because they, it's, it's, oh, it takes so long to get up. I'm like, you, you should be thankful for these switchbacks because it'd be a lot harder just to go straight up. <laughs> and on the Pacific Crest Trail, which unlike the AT is a much older trail, uh, three quarters of it was cut from uh, uh, 1970 onward. And it was made for, unlike the AT, which is purely a, a, a foot trail, uh, horses are not allowed. The Pacific Crest Trail is horse and foot. So the grades, the type of trail, were engineered and designed to also be compatible with horses. There's another nickname for the PCT, the Perpetually Curvy Trail, uh, because of switchbacks. And it can be very maddening at times. There's one 7,000-foot, 7,500-foot drop out of the San Jacintos, Southern California mountains, top out at 11,000 feet, down into a desert. Uh, 15 miles, you drop 7,500 feet, and there's a couple miles that you are winding back and forth and it looks like maybe you drop 50 feet and you want to shoot somebody. You can see where you're going and you're just winding back and forth. In fact, there was one stretch because your attitude's important out there that I would tell myself as I'm getting near a trailhead and I know I'm near it, but I don't seem to be getting any closer because I'm curving back and forth is I know the moment when I'm getting close and that's the moment when the trail turns in the exact opposite direction of where I should be heading because it's one last tease and then I'll get there soon. <laughs> well, I mean, you know that at one point, uh, I think it's up in Northern California that the trail turns fully South for, uh, and, and it cuts a uh, pretty far West over uh, towards the coast. Um, and, you know, if you're a thousand miles in, that's gotta be pretty maddening when you have to walk for a day or two in the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, um, I just figured that the guys that the, uh, um, the trail crew lead must have uh, had a daughter getting married that summer and they needed to earn some extra money. Yeah, we're going to cut some. Let's make this a little longer. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, your book, Journeys North, and I should have got, maybe gotten this from the title, but um, it's about this 2007 hike you did with your wife um, uh, south to north, which is the direction most people go. Um, and I saw in the blurb, you know, that it says that it also includes the stories of some other people that you met along the trail. You know, you're hiking for five months, you're going to be yo-yoing back and forth and seeing the same people quite a bit and making friends. Um, but I was still kind of anticipating that it was going to be your story. And I was really struck, and this is what I was hinting to earlier, what made this so compelling is you and you really told a community story of this community of hikers. Uh, and you go through all of their backstories and their motivations for being there. And so you know, not very far into the book, we have a this big cast of characters that are driving the narrative into which you and your wife kind of weave in and out. Um, so I'm curious, you know, when you had this thought like, hey, I could write a book about this experience, what 
what drove you to this approach of writing this more of as a as a community history um, of all these multiple and that the that's why I say the title it's journeys plural north which I didn't get that when I first picked up the book <laughs> and I realized like ah it's about a bunch of people's journeys so what led you to that approach it was one of the prime motivations for the book is out there we talk differently to each other so literally every day Every day I'd have a conversation with someone that you might have once a year with a best friend. And I became privy to these wonderful, compelling, searing stories. And that's that's the feeling I wanted the book. Um, uh, I mean, you uh, share a lot of moments where you and they shared stories that they had told virtually no one ever. Right? Yes. Uh, and there's something out there that you feel safe out in the open air. And maybe safe with someone else who, you know, hey, they just spent two, three, four days to get here, just like I did. Uh, there's one scene. Uh, we're in a shower. I'm in a shower with Tony. Uh, and this is, uh, I, I hope folks get to take, sometime in life you get to take a shower outdoors. That is, uh, the shower stall has the, uh, is open to the air. This was a ratty pine wood. And there's a, there's a plywood board in between Tony and I, but it's pretty thin. And uh, 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 we were talking, we wouldn't, uh, and with our eyes closed, we wouldn't know it was there. At the bottom end, our ankles on down are exposed to the air. We can see the pine trees, hear the birds. We are washing off four days worth of baked in dirt because we just come out of Mojave. We're on the verge. We've hiked 700 miles. We're on the verge of getting into the, 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 um, uh, 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 the Sierra Nevada, which we've been pointing to for so long, you know, a month and a half we've been walking. And it's as if the two of us are in a, um, uh, uh, we're both on a psychologist's couch. Cause I tell t- Tony, my wife and I are now 43 years married. And within a few minutes, I tell Tony about the three years that, uh, my wife Sandy and I were separated on uh, how we clawed and found our, our, our way back. And next thing I hear from Tony, um, is about how his 14-year marriage disintegrated. And the words are coming out at me as we're both soaping off. And he says, Scout, it's toward the end of my marriage, and I'm in the kitchen. It's a Saturday. I can smell gas, and I look, and I see the oven door open. And I look down in my hand, and there is a large kitchen knife. I don't know how I got there. Yeah. And in that moment... Tony both felt safe enough to tell me, and I felt safe enough to hear it. And I, I wanted to impart to readers what it's like to be in that sort of environment. Blazer's a young one, probably. Uh, there's more journeys north about Blazer than there are, is about Frodo and I. And, and Blazer's was the poster child for what I wanted to bring you and readers into. What's it like to, first of all, be on, on, on a 21st century pilgrimage? Largely wilderness and how, how you form these relationships, even though you might not see someone for two weeks and then you see him again, you're only around for a week. You forge these relationships. Blazer, 25 year old woman would call us her trail parents and we call her our trail daughter. Um, and one day, but both of us shared stories. Literally, it's like, it's, it's like we had to dust off these locks, hit them a couple times and insert the key. Um, and we, and we told these other these stories. And in fact, um, question you haven't asked, but I'll answer it anyway. Uh, my original format for the book was not going to be pure, you know, narrative nonfiction, which it is. It's a, it's a nonfiction told as if it was a novel. Instead, the format was going to be akin to historical fiction. I thought Blazer's never going to want me to tell these stories. So I will have real characters, myself, Frodo and Blazer, in the background. And in the foreground, I'll have doppelgangers, a couple, three or four, who will evoke the same feeling, have the same degree of, of, of searing stories and the same degree of trail challenges. And then one day, uh, uh, months into when I'm already go heading down this direction, Frodo, my wife, that's her trail name, sorry, Sandy, yeah. <laughs> she looks at me and says, you have made an assumption. You need to ask Blazer. And so I did. We're walking on the sidewalk. She knows I'm working on the book. Washington, D.C. is where we were at. Colder and I'll get out. And I turn to her, and these are the words I say, the exact words I say to her. Blazer, you wouldn't want me to write about you, would you? 
I'm assuming a negative answer, huh? And she looks at me and says words that are why you're able to read the book in its present format today. And she says, Scout, I trust you. It would be okay. You could have knocked me over with a feather. We then repaired and took 45 minutes talking about what that really means. Uh, Because it's one thing to say it, and it's another thing to say what it means is six months or a year from now, you can't say, you can't say, well, this little slice scout, that's off limits. Yeah. Uh, I write with compassion and care. And um, Blaze and I, we, we, we literally had a, a 20 different recorded interviews with Tony and Edine and Dalton. There was a, a less number, but three, four, five, six. So interviews you did afterwards. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's another thing I wanted to get to. I didn't know if they had given you their journals. I, a lot of them wrote blogs, you know, were posting throughout that I'm sure you used. But so you also did interviews to get a lot of these details and things. Yeah, yeah. The even events that I was at, and I was at many of them, I have one perspective. Um, and, and what it's a bit like, so that's one perspective. Uh, these days they have, uh, uh, football games, they have the, uh, they have a number of cameras and you can get a full 360 degree view or yeah. the rotate through is when I have done interviews of a number of people who have experienced the same event sequence, that allows me then to put to um, as true as possible um, uh, portray that scene. Yeah. So what do you what do you think it is about this wilderness experience that that opens people up or that um, makes people willing to be so vulnerable with each other and then you know as a result you know your hearts are really knit together is is it just the shared suffering uh, the shared common but absolutely insane goal that you're all pursuing. Uh, what, what do you think it is? Because this is very, this is unique. It's doing something to people uh, individually and collectively. So you, you certainly hit on two of them that when I see someone out on the trail, if I were to see you walking toward me right now, I would think, unlike I would in the city street, <laughs> I would think Brendan would give me the shirt off his back. And I didn't even know your name yet. And I would think, I would project out to you and think you're walking towards someone who you'd feel the same. So you have this shared affinity. One, because of shared suffering. We both walked here. We both appreciate the outdoors. We are doing the most natural act that we do. We're walking. The most celebrated event in our life is what? It's not graduating high school. It is, she's walking. He's walking. Even more than our first words. But there's also... So much has been stripped away from us out there. All the things that tug and pull at us. All the things that also normally identify us. If I meet you in the city, I'm, I'm immediately, um, you know, it's like when two dogs sniff each other, they find things out. I'm in the city. I'm already cataloging. We all do this. Uh, what kind of car? What kind of clothes? What kind of house? I'm looking social, you know, you're socio, socioeconomic already, and I'm already cataloging this. And here, I'm looking at a person in the same grimy trail clothes I have. And this person could be in literally, uh, 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 could be, uh, uh, um, uh, the owner of a baseball team who I've met out there. Uh, or it could be Cup of Joe, who I love, who is one of the happiest guys who winter times, he works at a pizza, at a pizza restaurant and makes 15 bucks with tips. It's all that stripped away. It doesn't matter what our religion is. It doesn't matter whether we're uh, red, blue, or green, political persuasion. All this has been stripped away. And so we talk about the important stuff. Uh, one of which, <laughs> one of the things I like out there, yeah, personally, uh, my wife uh, uh, doesn't necessarily agree, um, is I think no trail conversation goes five minutes without someone talking about bodily functions. Yeah. Pee and poop and yell. Hey, I had a good dump this morning. Is that okay for me to say? That's not, I mean, but that's when you're out there for five months. That's noteworthy. Uh, it is. If you've been struggling with not okay ones, you know. Yeah, yeah, and you want to share that. Yeah. Um, uh, but so all these things have been stripped away, and so what do we talk? We tend to talk about what's what's important to us and what really matters. You share some uh, great stories about how the you know this. Collective experience also brings out the best in people, and especially in moments of duress where people are willing to set aside their own goals, their own safety and health in order to help someone in need. Um, 
could you share maybe one of these stories? And there's a few, you know, throughout the book of people really sacrificing their what they were there for yeah. in order to save someone else. Can you share one of those stories with us? Yeah, and, and, and this is not uncommon out there. It's actually one people ask him, so why do you go out again? All right, you, so you did one long hike. Why don't you do a second and a third one? Why do you repeat? Why, do, why didn't you learn there? your lesson? Right, <laughs> right, right. Why, why in your fifties and sixties do you still worry your parents? Um, and one of the reasons um, is out there. I found the community of people I always wanted to be with and I never knew existed. Because the biggest thing I wish there was more in this world is kindness. So I will tell you one. Uh, and actually, surprised, I don't think I, I, I've talked about this one. We are in about as um, we're in dire straits. We are we are close to Canada five months that we can sniff it. We are within at this point, we're within about just shy of 40 miles from Canada. It is the second time we have set out from the same point. Uh, the last road south of the Canadian border is, I think, Highway 2, Rainy Pass. And we set out from it once and got beaten back by snow. Hard decision to make. We have repaired back to a little town of Winthrop, Washington, where we had our 15 minutes of fame was in little Winthrop, Rotham. Are these guys going out again? No, they shouldn't. But if they do, you know, we wish them luck. In Winthrop. And we hitch back. And we are now a day and a half in. Uh, it's the midst of, I think, the third of uh, five storms that were lined up out of the Gulf of Alaska. And it wasn't that we uh, had planned bad, because normally, uh, uh, normal times, it'd be safe to finish another two, three weeks ahead of us. We just got caught, as you do out there, once in generation storms. There's 10 of us, which is unusual, because all of us have hiked by ourselves. Frodo and I have hiked by ourselves more than half the nights in the trail. We slept by ourselves. We are iconoclasts. We make our own decisions. We're not just agreed to hike as a group, but we literally are going to stay the front and back are going to stay. We'll have a tail end Charlie. We divide it up into teams of two. So you'll watch each other. And the conditions are so bad. The snow is so deep. And we're on a foot of fresh snow. We are trading off the lead now every 15 minutes. And it's hard. I didn't realize that was the first one. And I, uh, we had, we had said we do 30 minute trade offs. Um, and we, we, the next person after me, we cut it to 15. And Dalton, now I think we've gone through four or five people in a group of 10. We're not sure if we're going to be able to continue on or if we'll take the last bailout point. About 10 miles ahead, there's a bailout point where we can go down 18 miles down an awful dirt road, but that's our last chance to get out. Dalton takes lead, young man about 22, 23. And at 15 minutes, uh, the person behind him is supposed to call it. They say, Dalton, it's 15 minutes. Uh, there's no sound from Dalton. He keeps on walking. At 30 minutes, the person lets him know again, and Dalton keeps on walking. And what we are all feeling behind him is gratitude. Because we have a couple people really hurting. Uh, a guy who's, um, uh, once he gets off that foot, he's not going to walk again for a while. <laughs> a guy who's really favoring a knee. Uh, and that's aside from this you know, uh, 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 often whiteout snow we're in. And Dalton is breaking the lead and he takes it for a full hour. And I don't know what sacrifice to himself, but we are just all so, so grateful. It's what we needed at that moment. Um, and Dalton was his best self out there. Yeah. I've gotten involved since I moved here to Utah and trail running and ultra marathons. And it's not a world. I've, that's nothing I'd ever done before. And, I'd only kind of casually observed, you know, road races and marathons. And one of the first things that struck me out there running or volunteering at aid stations or pacing or, you know, sweeping courses at these big, long races was was this very thing. Um, just how um, selfless, maybe not like the elite guys that are out there running to, you know, to really win it as professionals, but... Um, the selflessness that comes out when people are out. I mean, I, I, I've seen people, you know, train for months and months for a hundred mile race, you know, like even a race that had a lottery system to even get into. So you can't even get into these races half the time, get out there and halfway through sacrifice the entire race because someone needed help. Um, and like seemingly with, without batting an eye. And you know, that kind of gives me hope <laughs> in <It> humanity. Does, <laughs> one of the things, um, uh, 
one of the one of the last things that got cut in the book was a uh, uh, was a theme I had about four or five, uh, four or five different points in the book. Someone saves someone else either life or or their hike. They they do an act selfless that 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 uh, uh, enables the person to be able to hike on. Blazer, the young woman, uh, uh, reveals something that she had kept she had kept completely. A uh, 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 secret for 1,600 miles, um, and the theme I had pulled out from that um, was how little memory or no memory we have of these acts when we have such vivid memory of when we screwed up. There's a, um, a scene in the in the far north. We're going through an area that had a, a thousand year flood. So there's lots of washouts and blowdowns. And I described Blazer stepping over a stub of a log, about eight feet long, that one end is hanging over a 200-foot drop-off. Um, and uh, 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 the person before her, it, uh, I think I gave a hand and helped, and then I get over myself. Um, and then Blazer does. And she says, no, I, uh, I reach out. She says, no, I got this. She takes a step. She's on it. And a foot slips out. And she is going. It's like a slide on this on this wood log. And I reach out and grab. And I don't have foot traction myself. In fact, I I, I, uh, I throw a hand out behind me, hoping to grab onto something. And finally, I catch. I did not recall this event. Only through interviewing Blazer and uh, the other young woman who was there. Uh, I, today, I do have real memory of it, but I had completely shut this out. Dalton, one night, Blazer is, 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 is uh, something has happened. Uh, it's brought up old memories, and Blazer is quietly trying not to disturb anyone. Cowboy camping, sleeping without a tent, and Dalton's about 15 feet away. Uh, Dalton is thoroughly aware of this. They're close at that point. Not boyfriend and girlfriend close, but uh, very much brother and sister close. Dalton sensed that if I, you know, if I try and say something or comfort, it would be the exact wrong thing. She really wants to be alone. He just stays up almost the entire night. Listen to her quietly sob. She doesn't, he doesn't tell her about that till literally three months later. And when she did, she felt so, it's, it's like, it's like I really had a guardian angel that night and I didn't know it. Yeah. To this day, she just feels it's one you know, comforted by that. Dalton professes to, to have absolutely no recall of doing this. He'll say, "I could have done it. I scout. I cannot recall." Why do we do that, Brandon? Well, we definitely remember those moments when we should have done something and don't. You'll you'll regret that for your life, right? But you'll never regret. Yeah. Maybe, maybe and sometimes never even remember. You know, being that helping hand. You know, yeah. if we. You know, we ha you think of like a Lord of the Flies depiction of of humanity and human nature, and you know when everything's stripped away and people are put in, uh, you know, a, in a certain you know a situation of you know a, be it wilderness or whatnot, and that telling shows everything devolving and falling apart, and our our worst most base animal natures coming out. Uh, I'd like to think that your uh, version is closer to the truth that. If everything's stripped away, hopefully we're more inherently good. Um, and I'm I'm sure there are that the trail experience brings out people's dark sides. Uh, I'm sure there are things that come out, especially maybe mostly inwardly focused. You know, people are we're our own worst critics, and I'm sure self-loathing and self-doubt is probably brought up brought out through this experience more than anything else. But in relation to others, uh, I was really really pleased to to see how much people are helping people. Um, I also wanted to talk a little about, I mean, you've already thrown out a number of them, these, these trail nicknames, um, uh, and you hinted at this a little bit, as you say, you can't go five minutes without talking about bodily functions, and the same thing goes for ultra runners, that's mostly what people talk about is, uh, you know, bodily functions when they're out on the trail, but, you know, what is it about being out in the wild that leads to kind of this playful camaraderie leading to either nicknames or kind of you know irreverent humor like uh what what is it about the wilderness experience that brings that out in us one of the key things is that 
so much of this crap that we feel we need to, the, the face we need to show, the clothes, we're, as I said before, it's stripped away. And when you get down to bare essentials, what's matters? And you have now, you've done what people daydream about doing. And whether you're out there even, even for a week, or sometimes even earlier, you've put yourself down in an entirely different place. So now, now imagine that you are in a land where you're going to be for five months. Uh, you're a place where you could be mistaken for homeless. And if you go to a small town, you often are, right? The and homeless probably li- look better off than you do at that point. Yeah. Uh, um, and so it's, you've dropped into this, 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 um, uh, whole other world. And so if you dropped, like, you know, if, if you all of a sudden were in Narnia or in Hogwarts, would you still want to be called Brendan? Hmm. Or would you, you know, I'm, I'm now here in this whole different place. And so it's almost unnatural. But one of the traditions, we call them trail names around nicknames. Uh, one of the traditions of it is a name is given or bestowed rather than you choose. Like it or not, right? Uh, sometimes like it or not. Tell us the story. I mean, you open the book. One of the first things you share is the, your, your wife, Sandy, and how she got her name. Why don't you share that with us? Right. So so Sandy, um, uh, years before we hiked, she'd read trail journals. And one of her things was uh, uh, it just torqued her a little bit that uh, when folks would have gender switching names. So that Twisted Sister was a guy and Cucumber Boy who was But Twisted Sister was a cross-dressing band, so maybe that, you know, maybe that fits. That's right. Maybe that fits. (laughs) But she read Girl Scout's journal for weeks before finding that Girl Scout was a 30, mid-30s guy. She said, no, that's wrong. So fast forward to it's getting close to when we're going to hike. In the summer, the two of us hiked uh, by happenstance was our 30th wedding anniversary. And... Sandy is not a jewelry person, but I thought to myself, I really want to do something for this woman. And one day, it just leaped a whole cloth in my head. I'm going to commission a Pacific Crest Trail ring, have it custom made. You'd be able to look at it from four or five feet away and see the symbol, the trail symbol. And in the channel would be an outline of the Mexican border monument, the Canadian border monument. I found a jeweler. I drove her nuts for about six months, but she did this. She was so proud of herself. And I get it before the trail. And I'm sharing it and showing it to other people. Uh, we live in San Diego, so we were hosting hikers who were starting a little bit ahead of us, maybe. Uh, and so we start, and I give her this ring, and there's tears shed. And if she was sitting here right now, and she, she would say, yeah, and the most tears were shed by, and she'd point to me, which is true. <laughs> and she put the ring on. Day and a half, two days later, these people who I, in secret, showed them the ring came and, you know, show us, show us the ring, Sandy. And they all but accosted her with, by acclamation, we know what your trail name has to be. And of course, this is my fault now. Because the Lord of the Rings movies are really big. You are the ring bearer. You're going on a long journey. It's potentially dangerous. You are Frodo. And she said, no, Frodo's a guy. But the name was too perfect. (laughs) And to this day in the next room, she is still wearing, 13 years later, she's wearing the ring. And literally to community of thousands and not tens of thousands, they simply know her as Frodo. Yeah, yeah. But you can end up with a name like, um, like a guy who was sitting in a, um, uh, in a pool, that, um, 110 miles up trail. We go to a rustic resort and there are these wonderful pools, but the city folks come up there too. And he and his scruffy, uh, fellow hiker are in the corner and they're watching a five-year-old girl's birthday party bounce around right around them. And these girls are arguing uh, about uh, my little ponies. And one goes, I'm rainbow sparkles. The other goes, no, I'm rainbow sparkles. They're going back and forth. And so the guy turns to his friend and says, no, I'm rainbow sparkles. There it was. <laughs> and he still is to this day. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. You better be, you gotta, you gotta be careful. Um, you've been stuck with these names. Uh, <laughs> I have, I started a, like a little trail running blog um, called Professor on the Run because mm. I, I hate running was was kind of my the story because I really traditionally I've never run before I hate running and then but I do love the mountains and someone said hey you should come trail running with me and I was like well what is what's trail running and he's like well you know it's just hiking but a little bit faster and I had no idea this was a thing you know and so I started this blog about you know the professor who thought he hated running but or the trail running 
journal of a professor who thought he hated. I don't remember what it was called, but anyways. So friends will still see me out on the trail, and the, and I think they meet. They're doing it kind of mockingly, but they're like, "Hey, professor," um, uh, which I mean that's fine. I I guess I I asked for it, but what about um? I'm not a psychologist here, uh, and I don't want to kind of overgeneralize here about what types of people embark on these kinds of things. Um, I think a casual reader would look over this, and I mean, you do note some groupings. There's a lot of people kind of in their 20s, and then there's often a large gap, and then there's a lot of people in their 50s or 60s. And, you know, a casual reader might read that as, you know, these are people who either haven't yet settled, they haven't found their place in the world, and so they they go off on an adventure like this, or it's people who uh, maybe were settled and now their life has fallen apart, and so they go out for not quite a midlife crisis, uh, but, you know, they're now unmoored, and uh, they head off on the trail. And some might think that these kinds of activities, and it also takes, you know, five months, so you that that attracts only a certain kind of person, but people may say like, is it does this attract people that are somehow somehow broken? That it attracts people who are are in crisis? Um, and I don't know if that's a fair reading. Um, what kind of generalizations do you think you could make about the, the types of people that are are drawn to this kind of activity? A five month, I mean half a year uh, hike. So to do this. You have to really, really want to do this. Hike 20 miles a day, uh, plus, uh, um, and often you're in a background of pain, physical pain, and you're out there because uh, it's neat enough and you're willing to keep on doing it. Um, and one slight correction about the older group of folks, uh, I would say the majority, and certainly some have come aboard and they're having a crisis, but the majority uh, haven't Looking, you know, at the latter part of their having kids or before they're retiring or getting settled enough, they'd look forward this well. You know, I, uh, uh, my, my kids or whatever age or my, my stage, my professional career, maybe five, 10, 15 years now, I can do this thing. They caught the bug. They read something. So it's because they become successful or settled enough that they have the financial ability or like you were, you know, a partner at a law firm. So you could maybe yeah. dictate your own schedule and, uh, take five months off. But it's something people plan for years and years and years. Yeah, but that I wouldn't. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, for both Frodo and I, we we traded a lot of, we pushed a lot of chips across the table to be able to get out there. It wasn't just, oh, now you know, I, I can I can dictate. It's five months long time. But to get back to your question, and I tend to ask that same question a little bit differently, because I will say I would hear out there, I I would hear. Um, probably the majority of people, you know, some deep wrenching story in their life. And the question I asked similar to yours was, so are there a higher proportion of people out in the trail who have had a gut wrenching uh, uh, incident life? Or is it this similar percentage to those, if you compare a, a thousand people, a city, a thousand miles trail, it's a similar percentage but out in the trail, I'm much more likely, or I am likely to hear about it, whereas in the city, I'm not. That's what I was just going to ask, because maybe yeah. it's just lots of normal people, but the trail brings out that trauma or becomes yeah. the, the experience through which they they deal with it or they process yeah. it finally. So uh, what I've come to, and we've had uh, folks, we've literally had uh, uh, over 6,000 hikers sleep in our house. Um uh, one or two, three nights, and I've gotten a lot of people on, 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 on trails and such. Um, I think, I don't think I've ever actually said this out loud. The conclusion I've come to is I do think it's a higher percentage of people who have had some searing act in their life. And that may be why a bit they're more adventuresome and more bit prone to, uh, to, to like the, you know, it's not just taking a scissors and say I'll more myself for a while, but just taking a you know you, you, <laughs> uh, uh, you're taking a sledgehammer and 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 knocking out all the pegs around you to you know to do something incredible, and so I do think it's a somewhat higher percentage of people who have had uh, their um, number of folks. You know, the, 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 you've probably heard the phrase "walking off the war." 
Um, and the story didn't tell a guy who, uh, you know, God, you spend a month in Iraq, turret gunner, you know, being, being exposed and not just eight hours a day, 14 hours a day. I mean, gosh. And in, in live fire. And this guy came home. Nice guy came home and there were parts of him inside him that was dead. Uh, and he blessed his wife this, this day that he stood, that, he, that she stood by him. And about four or five later, he threw hikes. Um, uh, Wow. And he and he describes this moment. He is, um, I think, a hundred miles from the Canadian border, and someone has painstakingly in rocks has written uh, one hundred miles to Canada, did a comma in rocks, and then puts eh, e h, yeah, one hundred miles to Canada, eh, like Canadians do. And he just thought that was the funniest thing in the world. And as he's sitting there laughing at this. He realizes that five months ago I wouldn't have. And I have refound, I have refound that part of myself. Able to appreciate wonder, able to simply, to have simple, to simply laugh at things as I put one foot in front of the other out here in nature. So it's not just about redemption or salvation. And maybe it is for some, but maybe it's about, uh, transformation. That people know that they they look they they look at who they are and they look at who maybe they want to be and they say this is maybe this is the crucible right the trial by fire and I'll come out closer to that version of myself that I that I feel like I need to be because I'm, I'm you come out transformed right yeah um, and small ways and large ways I never look at I I don't look at a water tap I don't look at a shower the same when you have walked 20 miles between water points. And the water points are sketchy. When you have a filtered water and you're happy to see it's a lighter shade of green at, at the end, and that's all you're going to get, and that's what you do. When you can stand in a shower, not only can I control the strength of the stream, I can control the temperature. That's a miracle. And yeah. before that, I'd stand in a shower and just take a shower. You know, that's what I grew up with. <laughs> I'd like to hear your thoughts about some of the other big trail systems. Um, that we have here in the West. This is a what you know, Western Studies podcast, and um, a lot of what we've been talking about is you know, you know, implicitly about the West. Um, but I think you know about the Pacific Crest Trail, uh, the Continental Divide Trail, which you've also done. Did you do it north to south? <laughs> I did it both. I, I went you've north. done it both. Well, no, I I, um, I started northbound, did all of uh, all of New Mexico, and then I jumped. To Glacier National Park because uh, Colorado was was completely snowed under, and I did the rest away from Glacier National Park, and I finished at the Colorado New Mexico border. Ah, uh, okay, <laughs> um, but that's almost three thousand miles. It's longer, just a, right? Yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, I've done a, just a uh, a couple portions up by Island Park, Idaho, mm. um, where my in-laws have a grandparents have like a, a little cabin. Um, I'm I'm too afraid of bears to do much hiking up there, but um, but so there's the Continental Divide Trail, um, the Great Western Trail goes right through my back. I mean, it's about like four miles from my house here, and that goes you know the full length of Utah and um, the Pacific Northwest Trail, which I grew up hiking up in the Chuckanut Mountains, uh, which is uh, and that's a trail that goes from Montana and then all the way out to the Olympic Peninsula, the Arizona Trail, the Grand Enchantment Trail, some crazy people have linked some of them up uh, as the Great Western Loop, uh, connecting the PCT, Pacific Northwest, Continental Divide, Grand Enchantment, Arizona, and then a bunch of trailless miles through the Sonoma Horn and Mojave Deserts for like, I, 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 don't, know, I don't even know how many miles that is, like 8,000 or something. What do you think makes the PCT, it's the most heavily traveled of these, I would assume. Or is the continental more so than the continental divide? I would assume ten to one. Yeah, because I mean, so much more of it is so much closer to large population centers, right? There's a lot of the CDT that if you have a crew that's helping you out, uh, like you say, your wife did, like she drove around in a van for how many months helping you? Whereas you know, as you're going up those California and Oregon or Washington sections, you can have people, friends you have on the coast, pop in and drop stuff off for you. But, um, What's your different experiences been on some of these different Western trails? And I'm curious about what, I don't know how you think about the West as a region or what makes something Western or unique compared to say the Appalachian Trail or other areas of the country. But how do you, how do you compare and think differently about these different trail systems? Uh, from West to East, the biggest difference for me is 
the incredible openness and broad reach of landscape we have out here in the trails you described and in the country you described. <clears throat> Not you just, just the fl- ones on crest, like, I mean, Continental Divide, Pacific Crest Trail are oh, literally oh. ridgeline trails, right? Some of those others aren't, but they still have much more big open views. And, and not just open views. You're walking through open country. You can see, you know, for miles and miles and miles, and you can see for miles and miles and miles, and you're not seeing building after building after building after building. In fact, you know, uh, 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 you'll see a, uh, 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 a, um, uh, a water tower, maybe, uh, uh, far in the distance for, uh, uh for cows. Um, and we just have these incredibly, incredible open spaces. And it is still in New Mexico. Uh, I was hiking on the Conal Divide Trail, but I'm, you know, uh, especially along the Divide states, uh, Nevada, which is not a Divide state, but, uh, but also in Idaho. On the CDT, I could hike for two days. I'm covering 50 miles and I don't see another human being. And, I'd have to I'd have to pay a lot of people to stay off the trail on the East Coast <laughs> to have that experience, right? <laughs> I, I, I would have run out of money very fast. Um, so we have these just in in skies that feel different. So another big difference is that our Western trails areas, majority of the time, I'm cowboy camping. I'm not sleeping in a tent. Even um, uh, um, um, uh, and whereas in the AT, I think, uh, the Appalachian Trail, I think maybe two nights I didn't use a tent. And he's either driven inside by bugs, but more, more often than not by, by, uh, uh, by rain. Um, um, and on, in our Western trails, I, I'm out there at all. I am fully aware and I could tell you the phase of the moon. It's important because it's my nightline. Uh, it, it, it's important because at, at night in a glance, I know the approximate time, uh, and I had no idea. You know, I next had no next to no idea because either the sky was overcast or because there were trees over the way on the west coast. But we have uh, this incredible network of trails, and you just listed the long ones. Oh, I know there's so many. You know, oh, I mean, you say that you and your wife did, did the John Muir Trail was kind of your guys' first experience and, doing it through hike, but I mean, here in Utah, there's endless uh you know really long trail systems that yeah these are just the ones that link up you know almost steal the full con full continent because you know there's one thing i'd like people to walk away say all right you know scout you've written this book you described this you know life-changing experiences that you had by being out there for five months you do not need to be out there for five months you live on, the, on this western area and you, you live in an area that's spiderwebbed by walking paths spiderweb and to go out for an afternoon you'll feel different yep to to walk from your front door to your neighborhood park with a different i had someone uh who called me up the day after um um after i'd said those words said uh they, they found out they uh actually they, they sent me an email they found out where i was sent me an email it's great and said i did that i lived in this neighborhood for 20 years on my short walk to the park i met and had wonderful conversations with two neighbors i'd never spoken to before yeah just got to get outside Get outside. When I first moved here to Utah uh, and I was getting into trail running and stuff, um, I lived up in Davis County, which is just north of Salt Lake. And um, I didn't, I mean, I never lived there. I didn't know the area at all. And so uh, in order to go do the trails, I had to get maps out and figure out where had other people gone. And um, so I knew every little canyon and trail and everything in that area because uh, I had to learn it all in order to go out and, you know, not get completely lost. And I would post pictures on Instagram and these neighbors uh, or people at church would say, oh, my, where is that? You you posted that picture yesterday. Where is that? I, and I'm like, uh, it's, you know, it's such and such Shepherd Canyon right there. And they're like, wait, that's right behind us? Like, where, or people say, well, where, where should I go hike? How do I find these trails? I'm like, you know, on the Wasatch Front, just turn east, start walking. And before long, you'll hit a trail. Um, and you don't have to have a very long hike to, I think, get, really get something out of it. I think part of what makes what you did such a remarkable experience is like the, the the distance, the long days, like the pushing yourself physically and more so mentally really to the limit. And I think people can do that as well. You don't need five months, you know, 
if, if you're a, a casual hiker, why don't you go draw a 20 mile route, plan for someone to drop you off at one end and go hike it, spend like a, do a 24 hour hike and s- see what it does to you. Um, and I think anyone can do that on a weekend, right? Yes, they can. And would you indulge me, Brendan, allow me to do a shout out? Oh, of course. Yeah. And my shout out to someone who uh, uh, influenced the book, not mention the acknowledgments, but for 25 years when I, I was a lawyer, my partner, Steve Anderson, who also for a considerable period of time, uh, I, I would be around and people would address him as a President Anderson um, uh, and who now is, is, is living in Provo. Uh, Steve always demanded uh, uh, between the two of us, he always demanded that I produce my best written product. And that uh, uh, influence and, and help shows up in Journeys North was a dear friend. Uh, it's not an easy time for him right now. I won't go into details. But, Steve, thank you. And uh, um, uh, I know that you'll listen to this podcast. Well, I hope I hope Steve is getting out on our trails. They just got a little snow on them. We just had a big wildfire just right outside of town um, that took out some really great areas. But um, we have a lot of trails here. Uh, one last thing that... Um, and I think I mentioned this via email that this was a dangerous book for me to read because I just was getting the bug like, oh, I need to. I mean, I haven't even been I haven't been out trail running for, you know, a few days and I, I start to get the bug. But um, I have I have some future book projects that will involve a lot of wandering around the desert and stuff in Arizona and Utah. And, um, you know, but it's probably about 10 years before I really get to work on it. But it just made me, oh, I want to just throw on. I want to buy a whole bunch of ultralight gear, um, convince the university to let me use my research account to buy all the gear so I can go out and do the research for my next book. And Love just, that. Just go out and uh, walk for a week or, or, or longer. It's I mean, one of the things that first made me think of as I was trying to kind of put myself in your shoes um, is the smells of of wilderness and I'm especially fond of like in the morning, you know, down in the Sonoran desert. Um, like if, uh, the smell of like the dew evaporating off of creosote and the creosote puts off this as, as that morning desert sun starts to warm it up. It is just, oh, it is my wife's from the Phoenix area. So we'll go hiking in the mornings when we're down there sometimes. And that smell, I just can't get enough. Or when you get up higher alpine areas, uh, kind of at the same time when the when the dew is starting to evaporate off of, uh, you know, uh, the dug fir or the pine trees, uh, and the wildflowers start opening it up, and you just have, I mean, up here when I get in the alpine areas, I don't know which one it is, but there's something that puts off in the morning, almost like a peppermint scent, and I just, I just can't get enough of it. I just want to bottle it up and stick it in a candle somehow. Um, now when you're struggling with uh, blistered, swollen, sore feet, um, gastrointestinal distress, uh, and all kinds of other aches and pains. Maybe it's hard to find the joy in those, no. in, in those smells. Uh, at least, I mean, maybe so. I would struggle. You think, you think it, you still can take the moments to, to relish in that? Yes. Yes. Well, you've inspired me to think, um, my next door neighbor's done the great Western trail here in Utah twice. And, it, this is, inspires me maybe to put some things on a bucket list for maybe once my kids are out of the house and my wife is sick of me and wants me to get out of the house myself. Um, but to go out and do something, not just trail running crazy, but, you know, throw a backpack on and get, be even uh, more foolish. Um, you know. I, I hope to hear from you someday, maybe <laughs> years on I'd say, Scout, I, I got out this is what I did, and here's a couple pictures. Yeah. That'll make me happy. Well, um, wonderful book, uh, really engaging. And uh, again, I'll tell readers, you'll get towards the end of it and you'll be just, well, how is this going to end? You know, it, you really ended on a, on a cliffhanger. In real life, you probably wouldn't have liked that. You would have liked it to wrap up a little more simply, but um, it's really great. And a real good slice of, uh, it shows us a, a great slice, not just of, you know, nature and wilderness, and but of, of humanity. Because, I mean, this is, a Western Studies podcast, and I went into this thinking we were going to learn mostly about the trail and region and landscape, but I think we learned a lot more about what that trail and landscape does to people. It's a story, it's a book about people. Um, it is. It so is. Thank you so much for writing this, and thank you for spending uh, a little time with us. Brandon, it's a real pleasure. 
you and all of yours out there. All right. Take care, Barney. Well, that's it for this month. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll subscribe. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through, or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates, leave comments, and communicate with me. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We are an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understanding of the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream. We have an annual funding cycle with awards, grants, fellowships, in categories that nearly anyone researching and working on the region from nearly any disciplinary approach or towards nearly any kind of final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D center.byu.edu. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson, that's Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Bren Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, just about everything else, so you can direct praise or critique my way. I'm the author and editor of a number of books uh, and other studies on the West, Borderlands, Native Peoples, Genocide Studies, Religion, and the Environment. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or just about anything else, head to bwrensink.org. That's B-W-R-E-N-S-I-N-K.org. Or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind.